Developing Strategic Writers in Grades K-2. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm a literacy coordinator for a local school district, an adjunct instructor at Utah State University, and a PhD graduate of that institution. This podcast is all about bridging literacy research into practice. If you are new here, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. If you're a returning listener, thank you very much also for joining us. I just want to wish everyone a happy 2022. Welcome to the new year. I wish you prosperity and productivity in this year. And uh, to get that started, I've got a great episode lined up for you. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to say thank you to those that have either shared this podcast with a colleague or have left a review wherever you get this podcast. That helps just uh, spread the word of what we're trying to do here, which is get literacy research into the ears of practitioners and to help us think in a more nuanced way about how we can support literacy readers who are in our sphere of influence. Just as a reminder, if you're interested in donating to the podcast, you can do that from the Teaching Literacy Podcast homepage. If you click on About Your Host, there's a link there where you can donate securely via PayPal. You can also do that via Venmo, the business side, and do at TeachLitPod. And uh, those just help me with some technology upgrades I'm wanting to work on, and then different software subscriptions and hosting subscriptions that help just keep the show running. So big thanks to those who have already donated, and uh, I would encourage you to consider that option. Let's get to today's episode. Today's guest is someone I'm very excited about bringing on the show. Last summer, I read a chapter of hers from uh, the Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction book, which I interviewed Dr. Seth Parsons about. You can go and check out that episode. And then I was at a conference in the fall, and I watched her present, and I, I really loved what she had to say. And so I went and I bought her book, and then I went and her, bought her other book, and then I went and read her research studies, and I'm very excited to have my guest here with you today. Her name is Dr. Zoe Trega Filipakos, and she is an associate professor in the College of Education at the University of Knoxville, Tennessee. The work that she does is with developing strategic writers. So we're talking today about a book she released uh, last year called Developing Strategic Young Writers Through Genre Instruction. Uh, so this one specifically looks at grades K2. I highly recommend checking it out. She has another, an older one from 2015 called the same title, Developing Strategic Young Writers Through Genre Instruction, and it's uh, resources through 3.5. What I like about her work is that she has spent oodles of time in the classroom side by side working with teachers to really see what works and what doesn't work and has uh, a framework set out that really lays it out in a cohesive package. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I would also highly encourage you to go and check out the book because it was a gem for me. I learned a ton from it, and I know you would as too. Uh, what I like about her writing is that she writes in a way that is very accessible for uh, teachers. It's, it's, it's built for teachers. Without further ado, let's get to the episode. Presenting to you, Dr. Zoe Filipakos, and after the show, stick around for my two cents on the topic. Dr. Zoe Filipakos, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really a pleasure to be here and talk with you and be able to share everything that I can about uh, the work we do on reading and writing. 
I'm very excited to have you. I, I absolutely fell in love with the book that I, I saw that you'd written when I was at ALER last fall. And the title of the book is Developing Strategic Young Writers Through Genre Instruction. And this is specifically about K2 we'll be talking about today, but you also do work with third through fifth, fifth through eighth high school. And then I even just learned, you know, post-secondary. So maybe this will be the first of a of multiple interviews, but very excited to have you on the show. Before we get into it, uh, can you give us just a brief background of, of who you are and how you became interested in researching writing? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, so I completed my studies in Greece. That's where I uh, finished my first degree, my bachelor's degree. And then I completed my master's in reading in uh, the United States. And then also my PhD, I worked later um, in uh, postdoc as a limited term researcher and I entered academia, the world of academia. I have worked as a classroom teacher and this is something I have enjoyed. And this is perhaps the reason I still work with teachers and I love being in the classrooms because I learn every time that I am in a classroom. Now, the reason I have an interest in writing is I think it started when I was um, early on <laughs> in my life as a, as a learner, as a learner of how to write, but also when I entered my master's program in the United States, because I came from um, a, an educational system where reading and writing were together and they worked very close to each other. And I was very surprised to see that they were not. And also I had the privilege when I was um, working on my master's degree to work with Charles MacArthur, who is uh, a researcher uh, focusing on writing. And he was able to discuss with me all these questions I had and uh, give merit to these ideas of integrating and combining, which are, again, came from my educational background because we write about what we um, read and also we write to express ourselves, but it's not, um, those two are not separate. They are not on two different blocks that may be one in the morning and one at the end of the day. <laughs> so that's, that's why I think that my interest in writing and research in writing um, stem from that, from the fact that I, it was a surprise to me and I saw an area of, um, of uh, further investigation. And also when I worked as a classroom teacher in the United States, I saw a need in the students to express themselves, to write. Um, beyond handwriting, beyond spelling, a right to express ideas and communicate with an audience. That's fantastic. I, I agree. I think it's it's a peculiar thing we have here in the States where reading and writing aren't as close as perhaps they should be. And in some cases, never the twain shall meet. So uh, a couple of things that really spiked my interest about uh, when I when I first saw your book was um, was of course of integrating the the reading and writing is is an emphasis that you that you have really predominantly that that's your central focus of it that was one thing that piqued my interest uh the second thing that piqued my interest was in was this particular book was talking about kindergarten through second grade and i think those early writers uh there's there's important considerations for us to be thinking about uh, but the third thing is you use a, a methodology called design-based research and this is a it's a it's a mode of research that I've been interested in since early on in my doctorate program. You know, folks listening to the show, they're probably familiar with a more, you know, traditional quasi-experimental study where there's a, a treatment group and there's a control group and they the the treatment group gets a uh, you know intervention and they implement it with fidelity and then you you compare the results. And 
uh, design-based research is coming from, a, it's a little bit different mentality or different way of, of thinking. And I, I think it's very applicable to classroom teachers. Would you mind uh, explaining and elaborating a little bit on design-based research and what it has to offer us in an educational context that might be you know, different than other types of research? Sure, sure. I, I have to be honest and I have been in the book. I shared that actually in the preface of the book that I initially, I thought that I will use what I had developed for the upper grades for grades three, five, and I will just modify it for the context of K2. And when I applied it, it worked, but did not work as well. And that's because I was trying to import something in a setting. And that's what design-based research allows you to do, to figure out how to modify things how to work on things. And that's why we went back into the sketching board and redesigned things and worked with teachers in order to have the lessons that we have in the end. So yes, we worked on design-based research and the, as the term implies, it is about design, right? The researcher will enter the classroom to collaborate with the teachers who are in the classroom. It is not something that they, they are not bringing a ready-made intervention that they're gonna implement uh, into the classroom for the teachers to implement with fidelity. The, um, uh, the goal is to de co-design in a way the intervention to address the needs of the context, the needs of the, of, of the students. And at its core is a researcher-teacher collaboration, which is based on theory and on the design and on testing within a real classroom. And the benefit of um, DBR, design-based research, is that it allows for iterative cycles, meaning that we will work with a classroom teacher, we will work with a classroom or several classrooms, and then the, the data that we will receive from them through qualitative, quantitative uh, data, we will use them to make an iteration, to make a cycle, a change, revisions for a second iteration. So this is the, the, the difference, I would say, in DBR, that it, res it is responsive to the classroom needs. But at the same time, it's not interested only on the what works and the generalization of the findings like you would do in, a, in an experimental, in a, um, in a true experiment. But it's interesting in addressing the how, how the intervention works and how it can it best work in a real context with real classroom teachers, with real students. So I would say that it is, it is realistic, it's pragmatic as a type of research because it answers real, real problems. Um, it, it is grounded both in theory and in the context, in real context of classrooms. And it has that interaction between the participants and the flexibility to make changes. But it's iterative because it has cycles of implementation that you will do in order to refine what you work on. And it combines both quantitative and qualitative methods. So it's not just one or the other. It depends on what you're, what, how you're trying to answer. So it's, it's an interesting methodology that allows you to not only answer what works, but how does it work? And you are not using just research to answer the how it works. You work with real teachers in real classrooms. That's why I think it's so fantastic and interesting is because it's a building method that rather than a, a quasi-experimental, it's kind of a, you know, one and done, we're going to run this for 10 weeks or 180 days or a full school year. This is where it's, it's trial and error of, hey, let's run a cycle 
and then we review the data and then we do some tweaks and some adjustments. And so when, when you're done, you have something that you, you have built something that fits to the specific context. So, um, and, and it contains elements of quantitative work and qualitative work, but it has a different flavor to it. And it's something that's unique to education, which I think is, is powerful as well. And I'm, I'm glad to see that it's, it's gaining some, some traction. So I would like to share, because I'm teaching a class in design-based research this semester. I'm co-teaching this actually. It was Michelle uh, Stefan from uh, UNCC and colleagues from Europe and Asia. And um, um, I was consulting the book by uh, Dr. Ranking and um, Dr. Bradley, because yes, he has done a lot of work. And I think he opened this uh, type of work for all of us, the younger, uh, I would say, researchers who were um, starting uh, our, our career. Also, I think that the, the combination of design-based research to proceed with an intervention is essential. In, in, in our work, in order for us to publish uh, this book, but also our work, we, you will see that we do design-based research and then we'll conclude with an experiment. So when I, I spent uh, design-based research and de developing, for example, uh, collaborative reasoning with uh, K-2 classrooms, and I refined the lessons, I conducted an experiment um, in second grade where I tested actually the end product with second grade, where I did have a control and I did have the experimental uh, condition. So, but that, the cycles of DBR allowed me to have a product that was feasible for a classroom teacher. And I am proud to say that the teachers who collaborated in this experimental study, they still use these lessons, perhaps because these lessons, they were not stretched out of the classroom reality. They were made with the classroom reality in mind. It has to be practical. It has to work in, with, with real kids and real teachers and real settings and, and real time constraints and pressures of the day. So that's, um, it's, it's fantastic. So uh, folks probably, you know, probably gave them a little too much of, of design-based research of what they, you know, care to listen to. But, but I, I do think it's an important uh, consideration going into what we're talking about. So maybe let's, let's just uh, break apart the, the title of the book. So uh, Developing Strategic Young Writers Through Genre instruction can you explain there's there's two important terms there genre genre instruction and and being strategic what what is what is a genre why does genre instruction matter and what is a strategy and, and why do writing strategies matter sure sure so genre genre refers to the feature and the function of a form right of, of writing of a written form so um Genres really reflect sociocultural contexts that are shaped by the expectations that we have for, for, um, for communication. So it's the discourse. And one component of genre is text structure. So text structure will refer to the way that the text, the written text is organized and, um, and the way that the, this organization addresses the expectations of the community, of the, the that will read it of the reader in simple way, um, the way that the information is communicated for a reader, right? And there is the expectation of, of the audience of what this written text form will look like. So for example, when you're working in an argument, you expect that you will have an opposing position and you will have a, uh, a rebuttal, right? That's the expectation of the, the discourse. Now in 
in our work, we also view genre and McCutcheon uh, has mentioned that as well too. And again, this, this, all these comments I make about the uh, genre is Martin and Rose and uh, Holliday's, Holloway's work, um, um, and multi-semiotic uh, theory, right? So we view genre both as text structure, because it's important to know the structure, the organization components, the features of the text, but also as syntax and as linguistics. So it's important to consider uh, genre, not just as the building blocks, uh, because otherwise, if it's just the building blocks, it may be um, very formulaic the way that it, it's, it sounds, um, but also the, these linguistic features, for instance, when you're working at the vocabulary, but also when you're working in, in narratives, the use of dialogue, figurative language, all these pieces that you will see when you're working in narrative or in your work in stories. And now syntax, I say that uh, syntax is and syntactics manipulation that you will do connects greatly with voice. That's what I think it makes voice and having this syntactic flexibility that the, the writers need in order to express themselves. And one of the reasons I say this is we, we want students to write great sentences and we want students to combine their sentences, for example, in order to have longer sentences. But it's important for them to understand the connection between syntax and genre and text and, and text expectations. Because for example, when you're working on a mystery, in a mystery, you will say, um, Zoe walked in the room. The room was dark. She was scared. I could say Zoe walked in the room one while she was scared and it looked very dark. And I put it all in one sentence. But once I do this, I take away the, that, that part of suspense that mystery needs. So that's why we think that when you are looking into genre, you're looking both at the text structure, which is essential because you want the community of readers to uh, respond to this type of uh, the expectations you have as a writer and communicate based on these discourse expectations, but also the, the linguistic pieces as well as the syntactic um, expectations. So yes, we see genre uh, including all these three pieces. And now you ask the, what is strategic? Well, when I think of the term strategic, I will say that I think it's um, flexible. So a strategic writer means to us, to me, that it's a strat is a, is a writer who is flexible in the way that they tackle a challenge um, and they use strategies accordingly in order conscious processes, right? That's what strategies are to problem solve. So I think of a strategic writer, someone who is able to think about the genre expectations and based on the genre expectations, utilize tools that are relevant for planning, for revising, for drafting, for revising, editing, and completing their work. Um, so that's how, what I think of a strategic writer. But when we think of strategies, so strategies, we know are conscious processes that we will use. And in strategy instruction, as colleagues have uh, shared, we are answering three questions. What do I teach? And that will come from cognitive uh, science and cognitive research. So we'll teach planning because we know this is challenging for writers. We'll teach revision because it's challenging for writers. But um, also it me, uh, the second question strategies uh, instruction is, uh, how do I teach? 
right? What do I teach and how do I teach? Well, how do we teach comes from research on pedagogy. So we know that teacher modeling is a very strong pedagogical approach that we will use. And the third uh, question that we answer or we ask, the third question we ask is, um, how do I support independence? And you support independence through self-regulation. So in, in overall in strategy instruction, you will see these three components always, explicit and systematic instruction of strategies and skills. Um, you will see teacher modeling and, and collaborative practice, a gradual release of responsibility, I would say. And then you will see a, a focus in supporting students' independence. So in genre, incorporating this component of genre, we really address the challenges that the students will face and problem solve with this expectation of the discourse in mind. Yes, that was fantastic. Something that um, was eye-opening for me when I read your book was the connecting of a, of a strategy to self-regulation. And it kind of took me aback for a second, but as it settled in, it really makes a lot of sense to me that when when you're writing, writing is a very cognitively demanding task. I think I read, um, you know, Steve Graham say somewhere, it's the cognitive equivalent of digging a ditch. So there's a lot of of competing priorities. There's a lot of different things that have to happen. And that's where the strategic part of it and the self-regulation part perhaps comes in is, is deciding what matters most right now in, in this moment and being able to, to leverage that. And it's being able to prioritize different aspects of, of good writing at different parts of the process in order to get a cohesive product that over time is supporting independence, the emphasis on gradual release there and, and supporting the student independence via self-regulation, I, I think is really powerful. And that, that comes from research, from meta-analyses that, right. that folks and, have done. Sure. And I would say that this work, uh, it's greatly inspired, right, by the work of Steve, uh, Steve Graham and Karen Harris. Uh, Harris uh, has done extensive work in self-regulation. And the self, uh, the SRSD, the self-regulated strategy development model that she has. So. I would say that we step um, on the shoulders, is this, we stand on the shoulders of uh, giants. And I think that the work that colleagues have done in strategies as well as self-regulation before it's essential. So there's another plug, I think, for DBR research is it allows you to sort of pull threads from lots of diverse kind of areas of research and, and make it into something uh, cohesive. So let's get more into what it looks like and, and the process that, that you were able to develop using DBR. So you emphasize a process of writing and, and you call it the writing strategy ladder. And what I like about this is it has steps that teachers and, and folks that have taught writing are, are very familiar with, such as planning, drafting, evaluating, revising, editing, and sharing. But I felt that with each of those, it, there was a, a, a fresh perspective. There was a little bit of a different light on it that I thought, oh, I can see how that's better than, you know, perhaps a more traditional way of doing it. Um, you know, one example is in the the plan section, you talk about the the FTAP. And I, I read about the FTAP in, in your your chapter and uh, Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction. And we, uh, you know, we interviewed uh, Dr. Seth Parsons on the show about that book. That's where I first saw it. And then I was able to watch you present on it at, at ALER, and that really stuck out with me. So I, what is the FTAP, and why do you view that as an essential process in that planning stage, that pre-writing stage of, of writing? So it's a rhetorical analysis process, right? So we view writing as a challenging task. Yes, it is a pleasure to write for some, but writing is challenging, right? It's difficult. 
So we want to, the writers to tackle it so that they can analyze the assignment. They can better understand what the expectations are for of the discourse and for the reader. So in order to do this, we do a rhetorical analysis, a task analysis with goal setting. So the, the FTAP guides the writer to ask questions that will help them analyze the writing assignment, the writing prompt or the question that is given to them at that moment. So the F will be the form. What am I writing? Am I writing a, an essay? Am I writing a paragraph? Am I writing a few sentences? What am I writing? What's the expectation? Um, the T is what's the topic? What is the question? The exact question that I'm asked here. The A is who is the audience for this? And that will trigger now linguistically what I'm going to use. What type of language will I use? Do I use the uh, uh, context specific, do I need to address specific language, uh, specific expectations of the discourse again? The second A is the author. So who is writing this? Am I writing from the point of view of someone or am I writing it as myself? Because it's important for the writer to, if they write from the point of view of someone, to address again the linguistics, the time, the language that was used on that time, or the emotion of that person that they are writing, the, the um, uh, charge, the emotional charge that they may have. So it's important to know who is the author. And then finally, what's the purpose? So we have created actually a piece of pie, and we call it the piece of pie, purposes pie, where, um, so you're writing in order to persuade, inform, entertain, or convey experience, P-I-E-C-E, piece. So what is the purpose? What piece of these purposes pie are you using? And then if you, once you know the purpose, you're asking what genre. So if I'm writing to persuade, what is the genre I'm going to use in order to respond? I'm writing an opinion. Great. And then what are the elements of opinion? Um, I need to have a beginning, middle, and end. And actually in our work, we say that you always have a beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> but what goes in these sections depends on the discourse. Right, so that's why in the case of the opinion paper, you will have the introduction to the topic, the introduction to the issue that will lead to your position in the beginning. And then in the middle, you'll have reasons and evidence. If you're writing an argument, you will also address the others. So me section is my reasons, my evidence. And then the um, uh, other section will have the opposing position, the reasons for the opposing position and the rebuttal. And the end will restate the position and leave a message to the reader for the reader to think and act and do something about this issue. So this is this is the FTAP is a way to lead the writer into analyzing the assignment. But I will be very honest with you because this again is the value of DBR in, in our work. Um, FTAP forces in a way, politely forces, urges, I should say, urges, motivates the writer to reread the assignment because we saw several times working in classrooms that the youngsters, our students would see the assignment, would read through it quickly. They will understand something different at times than what the assignment was asking. And it, their, their outcome, the result, what they wrote was not responsive responding to the question, not because they did not have the cognitive capacity or the knowledge, but because they rushed. So the FTAP analysis allowed them to reread, identify in the text what the questions, um, what the answers were, and then really 
know that I write an opinion paper here and I know how to write it. So the strategy for teaching strategies and the strategy ladder we have allows them after to be walked, to walk on it using uh, the confidence that I know what I'm writing. But in our work, we use the FTAP also for reading because when you understand it, you can use your own terms, your language, you can connect it with your experience. You can do what we, like again, what uh, everyone says about comprehension, extracting and constructing, right? And that is the reason we want them to we, we see that using this process of note-taking better understand. Not only they better understand, but they can also um, summarize the information and feel confident again that they have understood and they can use that information in their own writing. So I would say that the FTAP is a problem-solving <laughs> uh, technique that you could use a rhetorical analysis approach that applies both in writing and reading. But the goal is confidence. I, I really want to empower students to be confident in tackling any reading and writing and not be overwhelmed um, or feel that they cannot do something. They can't do everything. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I, I think one of the power of something like the FTAP is that if, if we're going to try and, and integrate reading and writing better, we're, we're realizing that those are inverse processes right reading being the input and writing being the output you know to, to as a great oversimplification and so we can use the same tools in both and that's what that's the power of something like the ftap is we can use it in in rhetorically being able to analyze a text to to, to build some knowledge from it but we can also use it to help plan a text that that we're writing and being able to use some of these tools as two sides of the same coin that's how we start nudging towards having reading and writing be more and better integrated. And you mentioned that the, the strategy for teaching strategies. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because so much of what you offer in this book is hinging on that one process. So we, we have developed, and this came actually from our work with, uh, with older learners too, with um, Skips, with uh, Charles MacArthur's, our collaboration on the post-secondary uh, settings. So we developed an a strategy for teaching strategies so that teachers will use that strategy to teach any genre and across any, any genre. And again, we are utilizing what um, uh, other colleagues have done, Englert's work on, uh, on uh, providing instruction as well on the cognitive strategy instruction uh, uh, for writing, as well as the work of Karen, Karen Harris on uh, SRSD and the steps of writing. So we made great modifications, I would say, and we have incorporated this for the younger uh, learners. But in the strategy for teaching strategies, we begin with an introduction to the genre. And we are addressing, so what is this type of writing? What is the purpose of this type of writing? Where do people use it? Why will they use it? So we are addressing the declarative and the conditional knowledge, right? So why, what it is, why it's used, where will it be used from you? Why is it important for you to learn this? And I always say to students when I work in classrooms, yes, it's important for you to learn it because the teacher tells you and because it, you are in a classroom, but why in life will you need to be able to write an opinion or to speak in a way that you will convince others? So it's important for them to get that buy-in in a way. So, um, so we are addressing declarative and, and conditional knowledge. And then 
the, at the introduction of the genre, the teacher explains the elements of the genre, the expectations of the discourse, and then conducts a read aloud. And in that read aloud shows to the students how to extract main ideas from the reading using the elements of the genre. And at the very end, the teacher summarizes, showing to the students that if you know the genre elements, you can both write, and I will show you how to in the next lessons, but also you can understand what we read. And this is a practice that can be using across all the readings that they do. Then in the next lessons, in the next section, I would say, not lesson, um, they, the teacher will model evaluation of a good, well-written example for this um, genre and a, and a weak example. So there is an evaluation where the teacher shows how to apply the evaluation criteria for students to develop a schema of what is that I'm expected to do. So the well-written example is not an adult example. It's an, it's an example that represents the expectations for the grade and the expectations for the learners. Right, so they can reach, that's something they can reach, but it's not, it's not um, lower expectation, a good example. It's the expectation for the grade level, if I can, I can uh, make this clear. And um, then after uh, the teacher um, models, the students collaboratively will practice, and then they will practice in small groups using papers written by unknown others. So they're not, they don't, they're not papers of their peers. And they, they then analyze their own pre-assessment. And we place our pre-assessment immediately after the teachers think aloud, the teacher read aloud on purpose. So the students will have developed an understanding of the genre before they complete the pre-assessment. So when the teacher um, models evaluation of good and weak examples, the students already know the evaluation criteria and they analyze their own pre-assessment to set goals. So then they will say, okay, my goal is to do X, Y, Z. If we see that the student has missed everything, all the elements, for example, beginning, middle, and end, then we, we work with the teachers to give them manageable goals. Because for someone who's a struggler to set as a goal, I want to have a five paragraph essay, six paragraph essay, that's gonna be overwhelming. But for a student struggles, right? And I purposely use the term struggle. Um, I'm not using it nor to say that in any way to put down the writer, the learner, but I have seen that struggle. And, and I speak for knowing the challenges that students face when they cannot, when they feel that they have been completely shut down. And that's our effort, not to have them being shut down. So, um, so the students then with the teacher will set manageable goals. So my next paper, I need to have a clear position, one reason, a clear statement. And then the next paper will have an expansion of these goals and expansions of the, of the goals. So in the end, this, the student who finds writing challenging will be able to write a six paragraph essay um, and will know how to write many more. <laughs> because you, you scaffolded the support for this, for the learner. Um, then the teacher after the, in that sequence, uh, conducts a modeling, a full modeling of the process, explains the planning, drafting, evaluation, uh, uh, revision, editing, and walks through it and conducts a complete think aloud. Think aloud with coping though. So the teacher is problem solving as, as is modeling for the students how to complete the, the, the writing. So the teacher will not 
say, for example, okay, today I will show you how to plan. So the first thing you will do is the F tab. And uh, F stands for this, et cetera. The teacher will start by saying, okay, today I'm going to write and I'm going to show you how to write. And as I'll do this, I'm going to um, think out loud. I'm going to make my thinking visible and audible to you so you can hear how my brain works. And writing is challenging. So I'm thinking, okay, here is my question. Shall I just go ahead and write? No, I shouldn't. I should probably reread it. And I will use a strategy that will help me analyze it. So I will know for sure what I'm asked to do. So the teacher is explaining the why I'm doing what I'm doing while she's doing it, instead of just telling or showing to the students. So after the modeling, the teacher and the students will talk about the self-regulation language the teacher used in the process, how the teacher tackled the challenges when things were not working, what was said, um, how did, uh, how did monitor, how did the teachers set goals? And in the next class, they will do a collaborative practice, new topic where the teacher will be asking, okay, how do I start my writing? Do I just start? No, I don't. Oh, why don't I start right away? So it's playing this, um, excuse my phrasing devil's advocate <laughs> to see if the students can refer to the strategies that she has. And then if they cannot, and the needs that it needs necessary, the teacher models again. And then they start their own paper guided practice, support as needed by the teacher. The students complete the draft and the teacher models how to give feedback using genre-specific evaluation criteria. Um, it doesn't, the teacher doesn't just give them a rubric and say, go through and check. Um, models how to reread. Um, and we have a process in which the they, they will read the text, they will identify, underline the elements of the text, um, mark them on the paper, and then uh, score them using a scoring system of zero, it's absent, one, it's there, but it's not as clear to the reader, and two, it's there and it's clear to the reader. So there is that, that uh, process of asking, is this clear to the reader? <laughs> um, and uh, then the students practice with papers again from unknown students where they practice giving feedbacks, giving, for example, notes of perhaps you could say this, you could phrase your position in this way, but instead of them saying, this is wrong, this is not here because they can be, um, they can be um, very direct, <laughs> let's, say, let's say that. And um, then the teacher models how to do um, editing using editing for a specific type of genre again. So it will model a specific challenge the students have and show them the skips uh, mnemonic we use for uh, um, spelling, capitalization, indentation, punctuation, and um, uh, sentences. And um, the students will go back, check their work. Uh, in the meantime, they have self-evaluated, they have set goals. And then they will share their, their work. But the essence, I think, in the strategy for teaching strategies is that cycle where the students begin with setting goals after the teacher models the evaluation of good and weak examples. And then at the end, when they, are, they learn how to give feedback, right, the, how to, to evaluate, they, re, they visit their paper, the one that they just completed. They evaluate themselves and then they compare the, what they, the previous paper was 
and where they are standing now to see how am I progressing towards my goals? Am I progressing? Am I doing better? How do my strategies help me? What did I use my strategies? How did I modify them? Was that effective? What do I need to do next time? And for the young, young children, this is the language that the teacher will use. This is, this is all the work that the teacher will do because they don't have that language yet. But I can tell you, and um, I have kindergarten teachers that I've seen this happen, that we worked with, that I've seen papers of kindergartners where they would be reading their opinion papers and I would see an O next to the letter, next to the uh, text and an R. And I would ask them, what is that? So that is my opinion. And this is my reason. And then they would say, next time I need to have another reason. I said, that's great goal that you have. But that was because the teacher, the classroom teacher embraced this self-regulatory thinking. I think that's so powerful that it just reminded our listeners, we're talking about K2 writers here. These aren't upper elementary or middle school writers doing this, but that it is possible to get that sort of self-regulated style of thinking and, and planning with young writers. And that's powerful. All those elements that you were talking about earlier of, of the gradual release and the modeling and the think aloud and allowing students to analyze someone else's paper and then implement that with theirs is, um, but that's packaged together. That's, that's really powerful, but it's packaged together in a, in a nice cohesive manner. One, one other thing I really like that you emphasize in your work is a difference between revising and editing. And I think that's a, a, a really critical difference. Can you elaborate on the difference between revising and editing and, and why it matters? Sure. So when we're thinking of revision, revision, revision has to do with critical rereading and evaluating the content to assure that it responds to the needs of the reader. So end of the discourse segment. So in the case of a revision, I would say reviewing in uh, reviewing in order evaluating to revise, because I, I always think that evaluation is the process of critically rereading and asking, uh, is this responding to the questions for the reader? And revision is the actual act where I'm making changes. And these changes will be global changes, right? They're not just on the, they can be in the context of one sentence, but usually when you're making revisions, you're going to think of the ideas throughout and how they are, they are connecting from paragraph to paragraph, from section to section. So revision is very powerful it, and it's very demanding. Um, Hayes calls it as, um, an opportunity for discovery, because it's true in the process of making changes to better clarify a sentence, you may discover a better way of expressing the idea or expanding on that idea. So, and, but again, why do you do that? You're not doing it because your teacher told you so. You're doing it because you want to make, make it clear to your reader, right? You make clear to, the, to your audience what you're saying. Editing now has to do with foundational skills. It's not just surface level. I know, I know that it's a term, we call them surface level skills, but they're foundational skills. Spelling is a foundational skill, right? That can affect the ability of the reader to make meaning. Um, so editing will, will tackle the sentence structure, whether these format formats within the text are in place, the, um, um, the, the spelling, 
um, the, whether capitalization is followed appropriately, but it will have to do with this um, components of structuring the language, not with the ideas. So that's why revision will address ideas, editing will address the foundational skills and the syntax within text. If I, if I can share a personal experience where I, I sort of really learned that firsthand was during writing my dissertation. Uh, you know, when, when, when I was completing, you know, I, I had to adhere to APA style and formatting, which is a, which is a grammar. It's, it's a way of, of structuring the text. So it's, it's uniform with, with other, uh, you know, uh, pieces in that same genre. And I, I was finding that I couldn't, I couldn't do both at the same time. I couldn't focus on content and making sure I was communicating what I needed to communicate clearly and do APA at the same time. And my, my, my chair, you know, was, was really quick to point that out of, of I needed to do separate cycles of that, a cycle where I was really focusing on the ideas and content. And then after I could work on making sure that you know, all the, all the, the hundred million things that, that, you know, that APA asks you to do that, that I was in, in, in line with that and, and dividing those into two things. Um, I think it helps the reader or the, I think it helps the writer cognitively be able to, to focus, allocate their attention, um, you know, in a, in a way that they, they can actually accomplish each of those tasks. But, but those are two important things that if, uh, you know, if, if the grammar and spelling is great, but the ideas and content are, are weak, then that's missed opportunity. Uh, but at the same time, if, if you have strong ideas, but you can't style it and format it in a way that it is communicable to the, to the, to the reader, then that's also a missed opportunity. So it's not that one's more important than the other. It's that, that they, that they both matter. And so we, we devote time to each in, in different modes of, of instruction. Right, right. And I will say also that with the young students, because they are learning all these, it's important for them to understand their ideas matter and that they express their ideas. That's why we focus on dictation, right? At the very beginning, we want them to say their opinions and give us a reason. We want them to speak, to give, that's why, you know, in that strategy of teaching for, uh, for teaching strategies, the instructional components that go there, they will be based on the needs of the grade too, right? So in kindergarten, first we start, and second too, we start with collaborative reasoning, for example, where um, the teacher and the students have an exchange arguing about the character of a book. And we use um, Mo Willems uh, pigeon texts because they are wonderful in this dialogic interaction between the audience and the character where the reader, the teacher is the facilitator. So the teacher will ask, do you think he should drive the bus? Pigeon should drive the bus? And the students will say no. And the teacher will point to the sentence frames, again, that have to do with their response. Students may not be able to read yet, right? But they will say, my opinion is that Pigeon should not drive the bus, period. Right? So the teacher will model language. And then the students, when later the teacher will ask when they write, draw a picture of um, you driving <laughs> or something, <laughs> then we'll ask them, well, what is your opinion? Do you think um, pigeons should drive the bus? The students will say, I think pigeons should not drive the bus. And it will be dictation. Later, as they progress in kindergarten, the teacher will make the lines and the student will write, um, not probably with just the N at the beginning, drive and the J, because that's developmentally, that's what they, it's the affricate that will confuse. 
um, maybe the V, <laughs> maybe drive the bus. They may miss the V and they will write the B for the bus. But the ideas are there. So if instruction works on a parallel of strong phonics instruction, right? If there is systematic strong phonics instruction with scope and sequence that's happening at the same time, you will see that at some point, this linguistic uh, capacity will be matched with the ability to write it. But if we start immediately saying to the student, this is wrong, it's not spelled correctly, spell it correctly, without using, um, giving them the time to use invented spelling so that they will explore the function of, of the application of the alphabetic principle, then you will see that they will not, the, the ideas will be blocked as well. So that's why at the very, very beginning, language is very rich, very rich. And the teacher can still support this syntactic um, a development um, without giving more emphasis on the editing or on the, on the, um, on, on the spelling and letter formation and, um, and um, uh, foundational, these foundational pieces alone, alone. So um, even in the later grades, we say to the students when they are planning, because we would see that they, they were so worried about the spelling, we would say, don't, don't worry, your, your ideas, it's your ideas, it's your plan. Don't worry, even if you draw a picture there <laughs> or a little sketchy and you write a word, a phrase, that's fine. You don't need to write complete sentences in a plan and a perfect spelling and, um, and perfect letters, uh, handwriting. It is a plan to, to draw ideas. So um, again, I'm not saying not to support <laughs> these foundational skills. I'm saying that in the early grades, language should be very rich. Foundational skills should be very strong instructionally, and they should be working in parallel in the classroom. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. A listener may be listening to this and being thinking, well, I, I can't even teach a handful of genres. How can I do a, a, whole, a whole plethora of genre instruction this way? But the, the way you advocate for it is, is this is a process that actually happens in a fairly truncated amount of time. It's, it's three weeks, if I remember right. Can you just kind of provide a brief overview of how, how a three-week cycle of, an, of instruction can look using, uh, using this format that we, we've just described? Sure. So um, as I shared earlier, we're using this strategy for teaching strategies, right? That is, the, um, it's the blueprint of instruction. And if teachers use this blueprint, they can create their own lessons. Actually, we want them to create their own genre lessons. Um, I also would like to say that we need to be realistic that in, in, the, in a classroom setting, because of all the demands that exist, a teacher may not be able to teach five genres, six genres, but they will read many more genres. So if you're applying this FTAP strategy that I mentioned earlier, both in reading and writing, the teacher can introduce the genres the beginning, middle, and end, the structure, the linguistic and the syntactic uh, idiosyncrasies of a genre, even though they haven't taught it in reading, in writing, right? So you can teach the fable and how a fable is different from another fiction text like fantasy by, um, by just going through the FTAP process. So I, I want to make that as a big idea first before to show you that it's possible if you are 
integrating all these across the curriculum and you don't just view them as part of my writing time. Um, that, that's that's a, key, a key piece in here. So um, if you're using the strategy for teaching strategies, the teacher will begin the first day, will start the introduction to the genre and why we do this. And then we'll teach the, do the collaborative reasoning with the dialogic um, argumentation. And if the classroom is kindergarten, I suggest do it another day. It's not going to hurt them. They express themselves even more. Now you're starting showing and pointing to these sentence frames as you speak. And the students gradually start saying in response or echoing you, um, or as you paraphrase for them, it's not, we are, I'm not, I'm not advocating on the teacher initiation, student response, teacher confirmation. I'm advocating more for um, student response, teacher rephrasing, student, par student uh, repeating, teacher confirming, student repeating better. <laughs> so it's, it's much more of a dialogic interaction with the students. Um, then the teacher will model how to write and the teacher will do it very quickly in one sitting. And then the teacher will do one more again and ask the students to respond if you're working kindergarten and they may respond with a picture and then with their opinion, right? Why do you think that pigeons should drive the bus? I will give the same example. And the students will draw and then they will say something. And then the teacher will underline the sentence, I mean, underline the words that they will say, and then they will write on top so that they will start developing word awareness and then how exactly you are putting ideas into um, uh, from your speech stream to writing. So for kindergartners, it will look like this after the teacher modeling. For second graders, after the teacher modeling and the collaborative practice, the students will start writing their own, right? And then the teacher will model evaluation on the next day. And then the, they will practice evaluating papers and then they will meet together to um, peer review. And then the teacher will do editing and they will um, edit their work and they will share, right? They will share their work with each other, with the classroom, they will, they will share it. And then they start a new response to a new paper, which this time it can come the question from science. It can come from social studies. It can come from something else. So they are using even information they know or they are working on. And they will do again, two days of writing. So I'm, I'm in the second week now, let's say I brought us up to Wednesday <laughs> based on what I shared. They will write their paper. They on, by, by Friday, they completed it. They uh, meet on, on uh, Monday, they do peer review again. They evaluate their paper. They are um, uh, sharing it. They start a new paper. And then again, four day cycle, they complete it, they share it, and then they choose which one they want to revise. We give them a choice after writing three papers to look through their, their work and say, which is out of the three would you like to revise and publish, right? To share with uh, in publishing. So the key piece is the first week where the teacher does the modeling and they work collaboratively. Because this is the time where they see the teacher live using all the strategies. And trust me, everything they will see the teacher do, they will do. So if the teacher 
misses pieces or says, I'm running out of time. I'm not going to do this part. They will not do this part either. So it's important this modeling to be exactly on what we want the students to do. So if you use your self-regulation there and saying, well, how should I do it? Oh, maybe I should cross out all the things I'm doing. Then the students will do the same thing when they are writing. Uh, so it's important this, this first week where everything is introduced and the students are getting into the writing using this process, these this strategies and tools, um, it's important that it's very, it's very thoughtfully planned, pre-planned by the teacher. So it's not, it's not that it's not feasible, it's feasible, but you need to plan for it. Right? It's not the type of work that you, you will, it's not, I say, it's not like, um, like, oh, I would say all instructions, right? It's not like a cooking box that will open and say, okay, what does it say I do here? I'll do this. And then you do it. It's, um, you really need to prepare your materials ahead of time. You need to know if you have them all, you need to know how things are, um, plan your time plan uh, plan accordingly so if you run out you'll know where to stop to continue the next day what we we are trying to do is to have the modeling in one session because that way the students can see how you use the ideas from the planning to write it and then to evaluate it otherwise if it's spread so much across the week they may not see the relevance of planning um, and usually they don't use the plan if they may have lost it but they they may not they may not use it that's fantastic. And, and I think with all, with all aspects of instruction, initially, it probably is a pretty heavy learning curve, but I would, I would assume that over time, it gets to be a lot more efficient. So the positive part is that they, the, the main strategies don't change, right? Which means that as you go to the next genre, the students already expect that you will do some planning. And now the teacher will show how the planning will look for this genre. So gradually, it's an expected repetition and anticipation from the students of what the content, uh, what the task will be. They, and that's why I say strategic, because then they use the strategies and they know when to use the strategy. So they know that I need to plan and you give them an assignment and immediately they do an F-tap without the teacher saying, remember to do your F-tap. They, they immediately do it because that's strategic for them. They are using the strategies. So you will see that if it's done systematically across the classrooms, across the grade, you will see that the, as the time progresses, the students recall the, um, the steps. So when they go to the next grade, the teacher has something to build on and to build from. Of course, you account for summer laws, but it is true that they will, be, they will have something to remember. So the teacher can build on this. And the next grade, the same. So gradually across grades, you will see that the students are more confident in their will and ability to write, but also much more um, efficient in the use of the strategies. And you may be thinking that, oh, it sounds like a formula. It's not because you're working at the same time on the linguistic capacity of the learner. So they have choices on the ways to express themselves. So they don't all sound in the same way. Um, so, yes, I would, I would advocate for um, an effort that will be coordinated by the teacher in the classroom, by the teachers in their grade, by the school system across the grades, because then you will see how it can be, have an effect 
uh, for all the learners across grades. Wonderful. And that's, that's really powerful because the strategy, it takes time to integrate that, for that to become self-regulated. And, and we're always on this spiral staircase of, of language where we are constantly learning more syntactically complex language. And so we've, we've focused on the pragmatic classroom aspects of it, but I, I want to, I don't want to neglect the fact that this is all the process that you used to build this was very data-driven and, and evidence-based and that you have studies published in peer-reviewed journals off of this. Are there any brief highlights from some of those studies of what the data showed from using these techniques? So when we, when we conducted the, when we conducted the DBR studies, we, show, we were able to see what explanations we needed to provide to make sure that um, the content was uh, implemented with, uh, as it was intended from theory, but also um, through DBR, we also understood the challenges that teachers faced in differentiation because we have a differentiation model for reading, but it, writing is not, it's, it's much more challenging. And teachers need to conference with students and imagine a classroom of 30 will be very difficult, right? So we, not impossible, but challenging. It requires coordination. So we have, through this process of DBR, and as we were trying to develop now the model, the professional development model, we also um, created matrices for evaluation for teachers to plug in their data of their students so they can identify a groups of students who have different challenges as those relate to genre. I'll give you an example. After the first cycle that they taught, they taught, let's say, opinion writing completely, and then they taught procedural and then story. They revisit opinion. When they revisit opinion, they use the data that they have collected at that time, because they always collect pre-assessments, to plug them into this matrix that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing. And then they see that they have a group of students who really are challenged with evidence. And then a group of students who are missing completely the ending. And then a group of students who are doing pretty well. So many lessons that they will do, um, they may do a general lesson on evidence, but then they need to work with this small group with students on evidence. So they will have smaller conferences that they will do with this group. So we, are, we were trying to give them some guidance of how to, um, how to uh, differentiate their instruction depending on the needs of the different learners and how to gauge and understand where's my class? Where are they? Where not only in general quality, right? But specifically, what, what do they need for this specific type of writing? So that was something that we, we pulled out of the, the DBR. During also DBR, we were able to work and we are still doing that. We are developing a model of professional development of how exactly, how best to, to support teachers in working in this type of, of instruction, because it's our belief that professional development should be linked to evidence-based practices that you expect the teachers to use in the classrooms, right? Not general practices out of the class, something that the teacher will actually do and then it has to be PD that's with duration and connected with a domain with a specific um, work, in this case, writing. So what we, we also um, were able to see during the, this process of DBR was the function of the principles um, and how essential their role is in supporting 
evidence-based practices in the school, how they can give time, make time, how they can give value, and how they can give importance to a new initiative. So their role of principals and administrators in a district, I would say, is essential in any reform effort, in any uh, change that you're trying to implement. And I'm not, this is not new that I'm saying. A lot of others have said it before me. Um, now, what I will say now from the studies that were experimental and from the DBR process, teachers were at the very beginning, they seemed that this is not possible to happen. <laughs> and this is what some of their interview data showed. This is very challenging for kids. And then when the students responded, they were wondering, imagine if we were doing this from the very beginning of the year, how much they would be writing. So the teachers were um, excited, but surprised and excited at the same time with the progress of their students, which again, that um, excitement simulated more their excitement to continue with the approach and to teach, right? So seeing their students improving changed the teacher's self-efficacy and confidence um, to, to continue working in this way. We also saw changes in confidence. We had confidence scales that we used and we saw that the teachers who were in the experimental condition, they increased in their confidence compared to, to teachers who were in the control condition. In one of the studies, I, if I recall correctly, it was done with procedural writers in first grade. The control, the control condition had higher confidence compared to the treatment at the beginning. And at the end, the experimental condition, teacher's confidence was higher. Um, and the sample was small, so there was no uh, statistical significance, right? So I, I need to make this very, very clear. But there was change on the teacher's uh, uh, confidence. So that's something that we have seen teachers are not only excited, I would say they are excited to see, and I still talk with these teachers, right? They, they sent me samples. I'm able to see the work of their kids. They see the students using these writing uh, processes and the writing, writing outside of school. So uh, I have a second grade teacher who will send me um, a student's paper because the student didn't want to go to the swimming for swimming. And I wrote the letter to their parents explaining why he didn't want to go swimming. And the parent brought it to school saying, this is, I told him who taught him and to write like that. And he said, my teacher. So I'm surprised that he did that. But the students do it out of class because they see writing has a purpose that is beyond teachers' classrooms and schools' classrooms. And it's important to, to make this very clear that what you learn and read and write here is in preparation for outside. Wonderful. And that's a great note to wrap up on. Again, the title of the book is Developing Strategic Young Writers Through Genre Instruction. And then you have a, a, a book that's third through fifth that's a couple years old now. And then there's the K2 one that's new. And I, I heartily recommend it for any educator or pre-educator or building or district administrator. I, I, there's a lot of power in this. And I, I hope by, through talking with, with Dr. Filipakos that uh, you're able to see that as well. Dr. Zoe Filipakos, one last question for you. What do you think makes a great teacher in the classroom? Oh, wow. Let me just say that I have worked with many teachers and I have never seen a teacher who does not want to do the best for their students. And it's inspiring for me. And I say this with sincerity 
to be in classrooms and seeing teachers. They work so hard and they believe in their students. Teachers need to have support, that it's not a one-time support in beginning of the year or the middle of the year or the end of the year. Teachers are professionals and like any other professional, they need to receive professional development in order to increase uh, their, on their skill, improve on their skills and strategies like in any other profession. So um, I need to say this from the very, very beginning that I really respect and love working with teachers. It's, it's always, I always learn when I'm in a classroom with a teacher. Yeah, even though I have been a teacher, I always find inspiring working with great teachers. What makes a good, a good teacher? I would say a teacher who has strong pedagogical knowledge will be able to apply um, uh, practices that are effective for their students. Also a teacher who is a critical reader uh, themselves will be able to um, examine evidence-based practices before they adapt them in a classroom. Also, um, which means when I say critical reader, a, a teacher who is looking at the evidence behind any approach that they are implementing so that they can see, uh, is this tested? And what were the effects? And does it work? So I would think that a teacher who has this critical uh, questioning uh, skill uh, and reflection um, uh, on, on what they implement. Uh, so strong pedagogical knowledge, ability to be a critical thinker and critical reader and ability to reflect, reflect on practices, setting what I call instructional goals, using data to set instructional goals and identify what to do in the classroom, but also using data to set professional goals. So you can uh, seek opportunities for growth and, um, and, um, uh, and improvement of practice, if I can call it improvement. But it's much more um, goal setting, a process of goal setting. So being reflective, uh, using data and um, observations of students and students' needs and classroom needs, and at the same time, setting instructional professional goals and, and growing our profession is requires this ongoing uh, professional uh, growth um, so that we are reflective on the classroom needs and we are using evidence-based practices in order to support the students, all learners, all students, uh, because they all can be writers and they all can be readers. So if I were to say what makes a good teacher, these are the elements that I would say uh, make a good, uh, a good teacher, strong pedagogy, critical um, perspective, uh, seeking evidence-based practices, um, and the ability to be reflective, uh, seeking opportunities for ongoing uh, growth, being an ongoing learner. Dr. Zoe Filipakos, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Zoe Filipakos for joining uh, me on the show. Here are my two cents I want to talk about. The first cent I want to talk about is the power of a framework. What I love about her work is that she has developed a framework in collaboration with teachers. And the power of a framework is that it, it points you in the right direction. It lets you know the direction you should go, and it helps you make decisions with, within that framework. But it's not necessarily a bulleted list of da 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 day one, da 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 day two. 
it allows some flexibility in there. And so I think when we're teaching, there's always that tug of war between structure and flexibility. And the more I, I'm interacting with literacy research and with researchers and looking at curriculum, the more I'm starting to feel that perhaps a framework is the way to go of having a structure that provides the direction and the path to go. But within that structure, there's some flexibility uh, to be responsive to student needs and to be able to make decisions. So that's my first set is I believe in the power of a framework and I really like the framework that she has laid out here. The second thought I want to talk about is the power of being pragmatic. And by pragmatic, you'll hear me say that a lot on the show, but by pragmatic, I just mean it has to work inside of the classroom. As literacy researchers, and, and I'm you know, certainly in this camp as well, that we tend to, we tend to investigate one small thing and then we investigate another small thing and someone else is investigating another small thing. There's like 100,000 researchers out there feeling different parts of the elephant. But as you, as, as literacy teachers, you know, you're doing the whole elephant. And so this is the kind of research I really appreciate. I mean, I, I love all research, right? There's, there's a different role for all different kinds of research. But uh, specifically, I really like design-based research because it helps weave all these different things that different researchers has, have researched about and it tries to make it pragmatic for the classroom for a teacher to do. And it's very synthetic. It's pulling from lots of different strands to build something that works in the classroom. At, at the end of the day, I think it has to work for teachers uh, if, if it's going to have any traction, if it's going to have any efficacy. Those are my two cents today. Thank you again for listening to the show. Just a reminder again that you are welcome to share this with a colleague. You're also welcome to leave a review for us on wherever you get this podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach reading and writing just a little bit better.